Good morning. We're continuing on looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to go ahead and turn to there, to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 24. As I mentioned last week, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, all of them occur during this four-day period from the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles to the end of it. So John spends literally four chapters covering four days in Jesus' life, which is really kind of stunning because he spends zero verses covering the previous six months of Jesus' life before the beginning of chapter 7. So let's take a look. We'll read verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me on the Sabbath? I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that you've given us. Thank you for the Apostle John, who in the last days of his life faithfully sat down to record these words, both as he heard them himself and as you caused him to remember and reveal to him how to say them. Thank you, Father, that in your mercy and in your goodness, you give us these words. Words that when we stop to consider them can be a bit uncomfortable, a bit challenging, kind of in our face even. But thank you, Lord, that even when you get into our face, you do it out of your love for us so that we will live to the fullest of joy that we can have, not settling for what we were. Lord, I pray that as I walk through these next 10 verses that you would use me to say the words you would want said to the people who are here to hear them. And I pray that each of us would hear these words and understand them and be made more whole and complete in you. And we ask it because you desire to give good things to your children. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Jesus is now talking to the crowd in the middle of this feast of the tabernacles. He's up in the temple, right? And he goes into the temple and starts teaching after having been silent for four days during the feast, kind of hiding out, being quiet, 
not drawing attention to himself, not making public appearances, just quietly being there. But then he starts talking in the middle of the feast, which then raises this question, why wait till the middle of the feast? What was that all about? Well, we know from the previous verses that there was a lot of stuff happening and Jesus being in control of his destiny and in his time chose not to reveal himself and make a splash, so to speak, at the beginning of the feast because he wanted to wait to create any kind of conflict with the religious leaders. And by waiting till the middle of the feast, Jesus is now speaking to all of the attenders, especially those that had to travel from far outside of Palestine, because the reality is, is there were a lot of pilgrims who would come to the feast, but they wouldn't be able to get there on the first day or maybe even the second day. And by waiting till the middle of the feast, Jesus now has the largest audience he could possibly have at the feast. And people who might not know very much about him, especially those who've traveled from far away, outside the region of Palestine, would be hearing Jesus for themselves, in some cases, for the first time. And everyone who hears Jesus is marveling that he could speak as a teacher who has been well taught in a rabbinical school, even though Jesus had not been to one. And their question is, how is this possible? How can someone act like they've been to seminary and talk like they have when they've never been there. And their question isn't one of like faking it, right? You can tell when someone's faking that they really know a lot. This isn't the case with Jesus. He's like really legit. And they're like, how is this possible that he could do this? He's never been to one of the rabbinical schools. And Jesus answers their question. It's a fair and legitimate question. How? Where did you get all this teaching from? How did you become so smart having never gone to school? That's their question, in essence. And what Jesus' response to them is it says two things that are very important for us to grasp and understand, as well as for them to grasp and understand. The first one is that Jesus has all this teaching and he's so smart, not because he went to a rabbi school. In fact, in a sort of an ironic twist, because he didn't go to the rabbi school, he's actually smarter than the guys that did go to the rabbi school. He doesn't rely on the authority of the previous rabbis or their traditions. That was the system and the way it worked in their day in the temple or anywhere else in the synagogues. You went to rabbinical school. You relied on the authority of your rabbinical teachers for your authority. You and look, this was a culture that did not appreciate or encourage individualism. You don't go teaching your own ideas, was basically their mindset and their philosophy. You teach what others have taught you. But somewhere along the way, somebody had to teach something new, and then eventually that was okay. But in the rabbinical schools, you didn't appeal to your own authority. Look, I know this because of this and this. I know this because Gamaliel said this. You appealed to one of the authorities that you learned under human authorities and jesus is saying yeah i don't have any of those guys none of those guys taught me anything but i do have a teacher i'm not teaching my own ideas i'm actually teaching something that i have been taught by one who is in authority whose authority is quite authoritative my authority comes from the lawgiver himself 
not the ones who try to interpret the law that was given. I am taught by the God the Father. Okay, think about that for a minute. He's having this intellectual debate with the rabbis. In essence, see, one of the beauty... How do I say this? Let me think for a second. Give me just a second to think of this through. As a student of rhetoric, one of the beauties of Jesus's teaching and the way that he debated with the rabbis and the authorities was he engaged them without directly talking to them. Right? He's talking to the crowd, but as he's answering the crowd and speaking to them, he's also rebuking and rebutting the accusations and the questions of the leaders over here on the side. We all know what that's like. It's not hard for us to imagine. We've all had that experience where someone's talking to us and then you suddenly realize, wait, they're looking at me, but they're not really talking to me. They're talking to this person who's standing beside them, hoping that they hear the words that this person is speaking to me. That's similar to what Jesus is doing here. And he's pointing out that, see, all you guys want to know who's your authority and you're relying on that human's authority. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Not me. I'm relying on the authority of the lawgiver, not someone who's trying to interpret it. The other thing that Jesus is doing, because he's not relying on a rabbinical teacher to give him authority, he is truly acting like an Old Testament prophet that would speak the words of God apart from whatever the rabbinical authority of that day was. And as the true great prophet, Jesus is speaking the true words of God like a true prophet from God would speak. In essence, he's saying, yeah, I'm not like one of these rabbinical teachers because I'm not one. I'm much more like Jeremiah or Isaiah than I am Gamaliel. He's creating a distinction of categories between him and everybody else that they listen to. And in a sense, we can even say that Jesus is not teaching like a teacher teaches. And he doesn't need to repeat what other men have said because he's speaking what God has spoken like one of the great Old Testament prophets. Okay, that's fine. I'm good with Jesus to this point. Right, we're through verse 16 and I'm good with Jesus. You're not following some human authority. You got your own. You're not acting like a rabbinical teacher. You're acting like an Old Testament prophet. Okay, we're good. But see, now Jesus starts messing. He goes from preaching to meddling. You understand the difference, right, between preaching and meddling? Preaching is when I'm talking about something that you agree with and then meddling is when I'm talking about something you live in with. And here, Jesus goes to meddling starting in verse 17, with this whole idea of doing God's will and about who will obey because they're doing God's will. One of the uncomfortable things is Jesus isn't just building a case for his authority here in these, this conversation, this moment with the crowd and by proxy with the religious leaders. He's not just doing that. He's also, at the same time, building this case that he's a true prophet. But he's not just doing that either. 
He's also trying to build the case that those who oppose him or don't believe in him are disobeying God's law. Do you see the cutting irony in this? Everybody's like, wait a minute. How do you have the authority to talk about God's law? And he turns the tables and says, by opposing me and not believing in me, you are disobeying God's law. Jesus always outwits his opponents, no matter who they are. Jesus implies an idea here that is almost all of us have found to be true in our own lives. Right? When he comes to verse 17 and 18, we most often of us, we all understand this experience that we most often have to be willing to obey God's will before we discover what his will is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm, you had to. I mean, if you've been a believer for very long, I know you've had to have done this because I've done it. I get a sense that the Lord is wanting me to do something, leading me in a particular direction, a particular action. And I'm like, okay, give me the five-year plan for this process. Like, tell me what, tell me what we're going to do here and tell me how it's going to work. Right, and, and you know that, that you don't get that, right? I mean, you do, right? You understand you don't get that. You ask you for the five-year plan, you get the five-minute one. Like, yeah, uh, that's not how this is going to work. Are you going to do what I ask you to do? well, aren't you going to tell me what you're asking me to do first? No, I'm not. I'm just asking you, are you going to do it? Well, yeah. I think I will. How do I know? Hey, wait a second. This isn't fair. You can't ask me if I'm going to do this thing without telling me what it is you're going to ask me to do first. Oh, I can't. Oh, I didn't understand that I, as God the Father, am bound by laws of human reality that says you won't agree to do my will unless I tell you what it is first. Yeah, that's just not how this works. We've all discovered this. We've all come to understand this reality that you're not going to tell me what I'm going to do until I say, okay, I'll do it. Until I acknowledge that I trust you enough to say yes without realizing and understanding what I'm saying yes to is what you mean. We can't discover what his will is until we are willing to obey. And we all kind of recognize this, even if we're not able to articulate it that way, that we just can't truly completely understand our Lord, that we don't understand Jesus until we are willing to obey him first. Then we start to understand him. That's not how it works in all of our rest of our relationships. We don't do that. Anybody else but Jesus. And that's because Jesus isn't like any other relationship we have. And he's not willing to settle for just like everything else and every other relationship in our lives. He's going to be different. And thank God he is. Jesus is also doing something else here in this moment where he says that, look, if you don't obey me, you're actually opposing God's will. Is He's really, this is kind of amazing. Again, as someone who studies rhetoric, this is like, like how many things can you stuff into three sentences, Jesus? He's drawing a line in the sand before his hearers even understand what he's doing. They think they're asking him, what gives you the authority to say these things? 
And before he even understands what he's doing by his response, he's drawing a line that's saying, either you believe me or you oppose God by not believing me. And if you are someone who already desires to do God's will, that desire will lead you to see that Jesus is speaking God's words and his ways. Wait. Okay, let me get, let me think about this for a second, okay? So if I actually want to do God's will, that will make me see that you are speaking God's will? And if I don't believe you're speaking God's will, that means that I don't want to do God's will? Yes, that's right. Okay, that's a little little thick, a little deep, but okay, whatever, that's what you say. But it's more than just sort of acquiescing to his wisdom. Maybe we don't realize it by saying it, well, okay, whatever you say. We're not just acquiescing to his wisdom. It's actually acknowledging that we cannot know God's will apart from a desire to obey his will. God's will, the desire will lead you to see that Jesus is speaking God's words in his ways. That does not compute in logic and rational thinking. This doesn't work. If we're just approaching the evaluation of Jesus in a logical way. Because Jesus won't allow us to put him in that box. He just won't allow us to have this neat four-squared corner box that we can stick him in. You're going to fit here, Jesus, because why do we want something to fit in a box? Because it's our box. That means we're in control. Look, he's not going to give up his control over us to us. There's only one person he's going to give up his control over to God the Father. Jesus' trueness is seen that is in his desiring to glorify God the Father, the one who sent him. In essence, we see this. If you've had the experience of the PhD academic world, you understand this. This idea, this sort of worldview that says that your you know, efforts as a result of a student of this particular individual expert or PhD advisor is a reflection of their expertise and a reflection of their quality. That it was described to me this way. One of my professors, when I was studying the origins of the earth from a biblical viewpoint, Kurt Wise, who did his PhD in paleontology at Harvard University under, oh, darn it, I can't remember his name. It just went away. Uh, he, he would recognize his name if I said it. He was completely not a believer. In fact, he was somewhat atheist. He was very agnostic, almost on the verge of being an actual real atheist. And he literally believed, and this is the way people who are atheistic think, I don't live forever, but the way I continue to exist in the consciousness of the people around me is through my students. So Kurt Wise was how this person, whose name I can't remember, continued on 
existing even after his death. Obviously, that doesn't work very well because I don't remember his name. Yeah, only intellectuals can figure this out and make it work. Jesus' real desire is to glorify God the Father. In the rabbinical school, you glorified the guy that taught you. He's your authority. Do you start to get the twisted sort of, this is messed up? understanding of the way the rabbinical schools were starting to work in Jesus's day. It's like you say Moses is your real father and teacher as a rabbi because you're studying the law of Moses. But in reality, it's only matters what your guy said that you're following. Like, does anybody stop to think about God, the father in all this? Does anybody stop to think about Yahweh? Like, maybe we should see what he thinks? No, no. You glorify your teacher. And Jesus is saying, I'm doing the same thing. I am glorifying my teacher just like all these rabbis are glorifying their teacher. It's just we ain't got the same teacher. My teacher is God the Father. That's why I glorify him. And the fact that I glorify him shows you who my teacher is. Remember I said that he goes for preaching to meddling in all this, right? So what's lying in the background as he makes these statements is who are you and I glorifying? Who is your authority? As one who's been in the modern day rabbinical school, this gets a little uncomfortable. We show our true desire to obey God by whom we choose to glorify. Then Jesus gets to this ending piece where it kind of sort of makes sense. Everything he's saying in verses 14 through 20 make a lot of sense. But then we get to the end and he starts talking about this, you know, do not judge by appearances, by judge what was right. Wait a minute, where did that come from? How did we get there? Okay, well, that's because judging correctly leads to obeying correctly. Right? Look, obedience requires a conclusion prior to the act. I have to decide what is obeying. I mean, first off, we have to just make the decision, am I going to obey or disobey? Well, I'm going to obey. Okay, well, how does that work? What does obeying look like? What do I do to obey? So we have to draw conclusions, and those conclusions result from making judgments about something. And Jesus is saying that if you want to judge rightly, then you're going to obey. And what we see in all this is that the crowd is divided into two groups, especially when Jesus makes this comment about you're all trying to kill me. And they're like, do you have a demon who's trying to kill you? This crowd is divided into two groups. The first one, those that are perplexed by Jesus' claim, they want to kill him because they don't understand what he's talking about. They're clueless. And then the other group are the leaders who have already rejected him and are actually looking to kill him, and he knows it. And we begin to see this portion of the passage that this scene here that the people don't recognize and see Jesus for who he is. Jesus is showing them why they don't recognize him. They're the ones who do not have a desire to obey God. And then they accuse Jesus of having a demon. So like, here's the modern day equivalent of that. You crazy fool. 
That's the modern day equivalent of, do you have a demon? You crazy. They are accusing Jesus of being paranoid. Think about that for a second. Jesus, you have lost your ever-loving mind. There ain't nobody here trying to kill you. Look, we're all sitting here listening to you. We're actually hanging on every word you're speaking. Have you lost your mind? No, he hasn't. They just don't understand. The crowd's ignorance of what these Jewish leaders are planning and their desire to do it is the example of an irony in John's gospel. Jesus knows all things, and they don't even know that their own leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. And this lack of knowledge and understanding leads them to judge incorrectly. And because they judged incorrectly, they drew incorrect conclusions about what they should do to obey God. Because, look, it doesn't take very long for everybody to figure out that they really do want to kill Jesus. And by, in fact, by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, they all want to kill him. They all want to kill him. It's almost as if he's prophetically saying that they want to kill him before they actually desire to do it. So then we get to verses 21 through 24 where it gets to this whole thing about following and doing and obedience and marveling and what, what are you talking about? And Jesus speaks to them in ways that they now he's now getting to the truth that the cloud, crowd doesn't really grasp. But their leaders know it all too well. This is a man who leads the crowd astray. He is a false prophet. Therefore, he must die. And the law requires that he must die by stoning. They've already drawn the conclusion. They've already made the judgment. They're just waiting on the rest of the crowd to catch up to them. But then Jesus makes it very plain. They healed the lame man on the Sabbath. This is going all the way back to chapter 5, probably the, a previous feast where Jesus was in Jerusalem and healed someone on the Sabbath. And the leaders accused Jesus of being a false prophet and leading the people astray because he leads them to break the law of Moses. He's a false prophet because he leads the people to break the law of Moses. He actually told that guy that he healed to pick up his mat and go home. You don't do that on the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? You don't listen to us. Therefore, you must be done away with. Look, you boil it down, peel away all the layers. The raw, hard, uncomfortable truth is that's their attitude. You don't listen to us. Away with you. Do you get the irony in this? Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who created all things and holds them together, is being told, away with you because you don't agree with us. Fellow, you got your priorities upside down. It isn't that he should agree with you. You need to get into the place of agreeing with him. He made you. I think that gives him the authority to decide what is and what isn't and what you should and what you should not do. And if he decides to do something that you think is wrong, then guess whose understanding of what's right and wrong is wrong? 
Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. If it's okay to break the Sabbath, right, because they circumcise on the Sabbath, if that turns out to be the eighth day after a male child is born, somewhere somebody decided, well, so we got this conflict. The word says, the law of Moses says, don't do anything on the Sabbath. But the law of Moses also says that on the eighth day after a male child is born, that little fellow's got to get circumcised. And it can't happen on the seventh and it can't happen on the ninth. It has to happen on the eighth day. But little Johnny happened to be born eight days ago and now it's the Sabbath. What do we do? Do we circumcise him? Now we're breaking the law of the Sabbath. But if we don't circumcise him, we're breaking the law of circumcision. So what do we do? And someone drew the conclusion that, well, got to do it. It's the Sabbath, so it doesn't matter. Look, we still slice the goat's throats on the Sabbath, so it's got to be okay to slice some foreskin on the Sabbath. So they, they carry out the act of circumcision as a continuing act of faith on the Sabbath, even though it violates, technically, the work of the Sabbath. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter by saying, look, you recognize that the right thing to do on the Sabbath is to go ahead and circumcise the young male child, even though it's the Sabbath, so that he will be made a complete and whole Jew inside the faith of Israel. If that's true, then isn't it even more true and even more okay to heal someone on the Sabbath so that the whole man is made well on the Sabbath? Jesus' logic is airtight and irrefutable. And praise God it is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I really, it's really kind of uncomfortable to think about being obedient to a God that thinks it's better to make a person suffer just because it's Sunday. And then Jesus ends this whole interaction with the crowd on this particular day with this very stinging rebuke. This rebuke of judge rightly. Thinking that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath shows that they do not judge rightly, but they judge incorrectly. And if they judge incorrectly, that means they're going to draw incorrect conclusions, which means they're going to take incorrect actions, which ends up disobeying. What do we do with all this? What do we do with this? I mean, it's okay as long as we're talking about those guys back on that day, right? But when we start talking about me and you here today, what do we do with it? Well, some of the individuals I read this week, yes, I was able to read this week, made this, I thought, very stunning statement. Discipleship is not just embracing certain ideas, it is acting on them, doing the will of God. It's easy just to reduce our Christianity to an assent to certain intellectual truths or ideas and just keep it there. But that's not what Jesus is describing, apparently. Well, not apparently, obviously. He's saying you want to do the will of God? 
then actually do the will of God. Actually do it. But here's the problem. How do I judge rightly to know what the will of God is? Right? To do the will of God, I've got to make the conclusion of what that is, and that requires right judgment. Well, thank God, we're not left to ourselves and our own devices. Judging rightly requires a right spirit. Not just that we have a humble spirit, that's certainly necessary, but it's also that we have the Holy Spirit. And it is the Spirit who witnesses to us what God's will is and what rightly to conclude so that we rightly act. So much so that my conclusion is and my judgment is that apart from the Spirit's witnessing to us, we cannot judge rightly. And then lastly, let's not follow individual teachers. This is really, I know this sounds really plain and obvious, but it's really, really hard to do. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's a really hard thing to do to not get attached to your guy. It is. But somehow we have to resist that human desire to get attached to our guy. Instead of following an individual teacher, let's just you and I follow the teacher, the great prophet, the Messiah, the redeemer of our souls. Let's just follow him. And if in some moment of brain deadness, you thought you should follow me, don't. Stop it. Stop it now. I don't even want to follow me, so you don't need to follow me. You just need to follow Jesus. Because I'm really having a struggling. It's, it's hard enough for me to follow Jesus for myself. But then if I have to follow him for you too, that's just too much. I'm not that good. And quite frankly, I don't want it to be that easy for you. It's not easy for me to follow Jesus. So I want you to have to be just as hard to follow him yourself. See, I've just proven to you why you shouldn't follow me. I'm very self-centered. I don't want to carry your weight. Let's just follow Jesus. Let's follow him. He tells us what to do. He tells us his word. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to know how to judge rightly and live in accordance with what he's calling us to do. We just have to be willing to obey. It's really not that hard to know what he wants. It's just really hard to agree to it. That's the real struggle. I know. I feel that too. I mean, I fully, trust me, I really fully understand how big of a struggle it is just to agree to obey. Because I'm not the obeying type. Not really. I'm nice, but I'm not the obeying type. I'm much more the go-my-own-way type. So, that's my encouragement to you. Fight against yourself. Fight against yourself to obey and be humble enough and listening to the Spirit enough to judge rightly. And then you will obey rightly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your goodness. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you show us how to follow Jesus and to obey you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.